We will now um, start this, this evening's address by the High Commissioner. Um, my name is Christine Chinkin. I'm Professor of International Law here at the London School of Economics. And it's my very great privilege and pleasure to welcome to the London School of Economics tonight the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Narve Pillay. We're delighted to have you here at the LSE, and I'm also delighted to be chairing this address tonight. Um, I also welcome all of you to the LSE um, on behalf of the International Humanitarian Law Project based on the Law Department here and the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. But only a little while ago, I think the progress of human rights seemed a given in our world. But as we are only too aware, human rights have now come under stress and their priority is challenged. On the one hand, we see widespread violations of civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights occurring in many parts of the world, in particular, but not exclusively, in areas of armed conflict, and also, again, very much so, against those who are marginalized, for example, by their ethnicity, their displacement, their gender, their sexuality, their poverty. On, at the same time, the language and values of human rights have become challenged, seen perhaps as an indulgent luxury when set against the national security agenda or more insidiously appropriated as part of that agenda. In a world where uncertainties proliferate, the need for a strong, authoritative voice speaking out for the guarantee of human rights for all people becomes ever more apparent. And it seems that the 1993 Vienna World Conference on Human Rights was prescient when it recommended to the General Assembly the establishment of a post of High Commissioner of Human Rights. The General Assembly accepted that recommendation, established the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights as a department with a mandate for preventing human rights violations, securing respect for all human rights, promoting international cooperation to protect human rights, coordinating related activities throughout the nation, United Nations, strengthening and streamlining the United Nations system in the field of human rights. A very tall order whether you read the mandate, and I think especially in light of the changes that have occurred within the human rights system as a consequence of the creation of the Human Rights Council in 2006. Head of this entire office is, of course, the High Commissioner uh, of Human Rights. We've been especially honoured here at the LSE to have had two of the previous holders of this post to speak here, Mary Robinson and Louise Arbour. So again, we are especially delighted to welcome tonight the current High Commissioner and what is her first visit to the United Kingdom in this position. Nave Pillay was elected by the General Assembly in July and took up office only on the 1st of September 2008. High Commissioner Pillay is a South African national who has a BA and LLB from Natal University, South Africa, and an LLM and SJD from Harvard University. She was the first woman to start a law practice in her home province of Natal, and over the, those years she acted as a defense attorney for anti-apartheid activists. She's been a university lecturer and a vice president of the University of Durban, Westville. After the end of apartheid in 1995, Ms. Pillay was appointed a judge on the South African High Court, and in the same year was chosen to be a judge on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where she was for eight years four of them as president. Many advocates of women's human rights associate Judge Pillay especially with the Akayesu decision, the ICTR's groundbreaking decision relating to rape as a crime against humanity and rape and genocide. Of course, she was also involved in many other cases arising out of the um, jurisdiction of the ICTR. In 2003, she was appointed as a judge on the International Criminal Court at The Hague, and she has remained there until August 2008, and when she left to join the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights. In South Africa, as a member of the Women's National Coalition, she contributed to the inclusion of an equality clause, the most advanced equality clause in any country's constitution, prohibiting discrimination inter alia on grounds of race, religion, sex, gender, sexual orientation. She's also co-founder of Equality Now, an international women's NGO, and has been involved with numerous other organizations relating to children, detainees, victims of torture, domestic violence, economic, social, and cultural rights issues. I've talked far too long. I will hand over to High Commissioner Pillay to address us on human rights in United Nations action, norms, institution, and leadership. And again, I'm delighted to welcome you here.
once called to speak at a university in Durban and just four students turned up. So, so you can imagine how uh, privileged I feel that uh, there are so many students, faculty, and guests here tonight. Um, I usually just like to chat about my work, tell all kinds of anecdotes and stories, but this is a lecture, so I'm going to take it very seriously and behave as your lecturers do. Um, I'd like to thank Professor Chinkin, who is a very close friend, and we go a long way to uh, Beijing and the World Conference on Women's Rights. And I'd like to thank the faculty and students for hosting me here today. This is my first lecture at university since becoming High Commissioner, and uh, I was rather conscious that I had said no to Harvard twice already. <laughs> I heard about this so-called tradition where my predecessors had uh, addressed you, and I'm rather anxious about this continuity that I have to maintain with my predecessors. So I'm going to maintain the continuity for the next two months. Next year, I'll come in on my own and uh, be more in charge of, of things, I feel. But otherwise, I think this is great uh, advice that my office gave me, that I should uh, uh, address you today, because I am in uh, London for meetings with the government that I just completed a few minutes ago. Um, I had the uh, opportunity to welcome uh, Professor Chinkin in Geneva last September, where together with uh, another old friend of mine, uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu, th they were presenting a report of their high-level fact-finding mission on the tragedy of Beta Noon. I had literally just assumed my functions as High Commissioner, and I was very glad to see their familiar faces in a setting uh, yet unknown to me. My mandate as High Commissioner started uh, propitiously as it began in a year marked by important anniversaries. Let me uh, list them. The 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Genocide uh, Convention, the 10th anniversaries of the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders and the Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement, as well as the 15th anniversary of the Vienna World Conference on Human Rights, which established my mandate. Such important anniversaries, in my view, not only represent rallying points for human rights uh, communities, but also opportunities to reflect on the progress made and the challenges that remain before us. It is undeniable that in the past six decades, human rights have experienced an unprecedented affirmation all over the world. Crucially, as the Secretary General of the United Nations pointed out, this progress has involved all aspects of the international human rights architecture. This included standard setting and norm creation where protection gaps existed or persisted. It required the development of appropriate institutions that could be both the repositories and the guardians of these standards, as well as advocacy for the implementation of programs at the national, regional, and international levels. As recognized most recently by the 2005 World Summit, there is now a widely shared understanding of the indivisibility and interrelation of the components of human welfare and dignity, that is, human rights, development, and security. These three pillars support and shape the structure and directions of our commitment to fulfill human aspirations, needs, and entitlements. During my visit here with uh, ministers in the government appointed to um, my understanding that there was a need to attend to security matters, but human rights is the central pillar that had to be guarded in security, security legislations. Allow me uh, to expand on these uh, key aspects of the United Nations work on human rights that the Secretary General referred to, namely standard setting, 
institution building and program implementation, as well as the exercise of leadership. I will also assess both progress and tenacious shortcomings in the implementation of human rights. With regard to standard setting today, a wide body of international law enhances fundamental protection in times of peace, war, emergency, and transition. To date, the constitutions of more than 90 states reflect the principles of the Universal Declaration, where all states have ratified at least one of the core international human rights treaties that have been adopted during this time. New developments in human rights law continue to come into being to complement existing treaties and customary norms and to further flesh out the Universal Declaration's holistic vision of human rights. Progress has been particularly notable in the area of social, economic, and cultural rights. Let me recall that this set of rights had been neglected for decades, as political and civil rights continued to catch most of the limelight throughout the post-World War II era and until the dissolution of the former Soviet Union. Economic, social, and cultural rights also lacked appropriate enforcement mechanisms at the international level, a severe shortcoming that the new optional protocol to the Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights is meant to address. So this optional protocol uh, is under discussion. However, the optional protocol to the um, Convention on Civil and Political Rights has been around for some time, and I do look forward to the United Kingdom making a significant gesture on the 60th anniversary of the, of the Universal Declaration by ratifying the optional protocol. On a related topic, I note the progress achieved in applying the concept of a human rights-based approach to development which is so vital in a world that needs to focus on ensuring social and economic justice in order to achieve general welfare and peace. One need only to think of the devastating effects on global welfare and on the most vulnerable that crises such as the recent food emergency or the degradation of the environment or fast-spreading epidemics are producing and can produce in the absence of safety nets firmly anchored to human rights. And let me also point out that even seemingly elite crises, such as the one currently engulfing the international financial markets, are likely to be confined, are unlikely to be confined to affluent citadels. The market's turmoil has already spilled into the global real economy with potentially dire and possibly lasting consequences. No measure should be overlooked to mitigate the most nefarious effects of this crisis on the rights of those who live at the margins of the world's economy, particularly the very poor and people eking out a living at subsistence levels. A failure to recognize and uphold women's right, human rights also compounds economic problems and undermines sustainable development. Such discrimination, often leading to violence, continues to occur in too many countries in the world, despite international standards prohibiting it, and despite ample and well-grounded proof of the indispensable role that women play in creating wealth welfare and societal betterment, as well as peace and security. By the same token, I cannot overemphasize the importance of the application of equality and non-discrimination principles in law and practice to specific individuals and groups, those who stand on the front lines of hardship and are more exposed to abuse. 
Innovative measures have been devised to enhance both the protection and the empowerment of such groups. These include the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the Convention for the Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearance, and the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, all of which have been recently adopted. It is now crucial to give effect to these fundamental standards of non-discrimination and equality. Furthermore, a review conference on racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance, which is scheduled to take place in April 2009 in Geneva, must produce progress on the implementation of the Durban Declaration and Plan of Action. Let us recall that this document was adopted by consensus at the conclusion of the 2001 conference, precisely because it offers a comprehensive global framework and platform, actionable at all latitudes, to combat the persistent plagues of racism and intolerance. Yet also with regard to this vital topic, implementation lamentably lags well behind vision. I'm well aware that the Durban review process is under intense scrutiny on both sides of the Atlantic. This is because the important work of the 2001 World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance in Durban and its legacy have been overshadowed by the odious anti-Semitic behavior of a few non-governmental organizations on the sidelines of the Durban Conference. These concerns cannot be brushed aside. At the same time, however, no one would question that the matters of the 2001 Durban remain among the most critical human rights challenges of our time. There can be no escaping the fact that these issues need to be addressed. Preparations for the review conference have further expanded areas of convergence. In April, states are expected to provide an assessment of achievements and gaps in the implementation of the commitments made in 2001, as well as identify concrete ways to improve, to improve performance and impact on the ground. Undoubtedly, many other old and new, as well as difficult and potentially divisive issues remain unsolved, including reparations for slavery and colonialism, uh, including the use of the internet and other media by extremists, racial stereotyping in law enforcement, and migration. As it does in many other fora, the situation in the Middle East will likely draw different and often divergent perspectives. In this regard, it is worth noting that the Durban document and plan of action recognizes Israel's right to security and calls for an end to violence in the Middle East. It also urges Israelis and Palestinians to resume the peace process. I'm convinced that with goodwill and commitment to collegiality, it is possible to have constructive discussions on all these issues. We owe a frank and open-minded debate and concrete action to the victims of discrimination, intolerance, and racism. We must remove the obstacles that stand between them and the achievement of a life in full dignity and rights. I have uh, stressed the importance of participation by governments in the Durban Review Conference because I have heard, and you, have, you may have heard, that some governments are intending to withdraw their participation from this important review conference on racial discrimination, 
xenophobia, and other intolerable uh, racial practices. Speaking of obstacles to the realization of human rights should never make us lose sight of progress which takes place in many areas and ways. In addition to setting new standards, recent innovations in the human rights field have involved the development of transitional justice initiatives following armed conflict. They also include successful moves to ensure institutionalized accountability for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, notably through the creation of the International Criminal Court and the tribunals for former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda. However, these remarkable achievements need to be shored up with sustained support on the part of the international community. Such support requires political will as well as adequate resources. Moreover, to make international justice run its proper course, collaboration in evidence gathering and in the surrender of arrests of suspects, as well as cooperation with relevant national bodies, are still sorely needed. Having served as a judge in the prosecution of genocide for many years, I urge the international community to focus on prevention particularly regarding the most heinous crimes, such as crimes against humanity, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. We must help states address the root causes that make these atrocities even possible. In such an effort, we can be assisted not only by existing human rights and international humanitarian law, but also by emerging norms. We must recognize that as a part of standard setting, the discussion, conceptualization, and shaping of new norms represents a vital component of the international community's work for human rights. It is in this realm that human rights creativity may initially manifest itself by preparing the ground and fostering the debate on issues that merit collective responses, but that have yet to elicit binding legal commitments on the part of states. The concept of the responsibility to protect civilians against the worst abuses offers a very apt illustration of this norm creation process. When such concept was first enunciated, against the backdrop of the Rwandan genocide and the war in the former Yugoslavia, there was widespread reluctance to embrace it. Doubts were raised about the legitimacy of the ways and means of external intervention to be carried out, possibly against the wishes of a sovereign state. Objections, however, could not persuasively counter the inherent soundness of this concept, which is anchored in the fundamental notion of civilian invi inviolability. As a result, the concept continued to make significant inroads in international thought, and it was finally endorsed by the World Summit. Norms and pledges, however, are good only if their full implications are understood and effectively applied in practice. There is no doubt that the full pot potential of the protection norm is still far from being realized. In the meantime, the consequences of the international community's failure in preventing the escalation of chronic conflict and abuses, as well as the tardiness and inadequacy of its reaction to crises, remain only too apparent. The progressive recognition of human rights would not have been possible without the dedication of many women and men who devoted their lives and work to these ideals. But as John Monet, one of the greatest institution builders of our time, noted, the best human achievements cannot last 
without institutions designed to support them. The best strategies for implementation of human rights are likewise going to fail unless suitable institutions exist. In parallel with an expansion of human rights standards, the human rights machinery, including special procedures, treaty bodies, and intergovernmental bodies, has been growing in numbers and strength over the past decade and a half. The reform of the United Nations intergovernmental human rights machinery was long overdue and has finally been tackled, culminating in the replacement of the Commission of Human Rights with the Human Rights Council, which has now established the institutional infrastructure to ensure that its mandate for the promotion and protection of human rights is properly carried out. I am aware that skepticism has been expressed regarding this Human Rights Council. Some are concerned that this new body's ways may not differ much from the practices of its predecessor, the Commission. But it is undeniable that the Council's assessment at regular intervals of the human rights record of all UN member states, known as the Universal Periodic Review, is a genuinely innovative conception. Only time can tell whether the review will effectively change for the better the human rights situations on the ground. For the present, we should recognize that this initiative carries a prom promising potential, since it's the states themselves who have accepted responsibility to be accountable and who hold this peer record of one another's human rights uh, performance. Moreover, the Council, unlike the Commission, is virtually a standing body. The frequency of its meetings, both informal and informal gatherings, may thus create more opportunities to better hone operations and responses to both chronic human rights conditions and to crises. Such assiduity may also help to build a firmer ground of understanding among the Council's members than sporadic interactions would allow for. If the Human Rights Council is the premier intergovernmental body for the promotion and protection of human rights, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which is part of the United Nations Secretariat, <coughs> is their leading international advocate and independent champion. As the Secretary General noted, since its creation in 1993, the Office of the High Commissioner has grown from a fledgling mechanism to a powerful engine for change. It has expanded dramatically, elevated the profile of human rights all over the world, provided expert um, advice for capacity building to states and within the United Nations system, and preserve the autonomy of judgment and scope of action that are indispensable to human rights work and advocacy. Today, the OHCHR is, a unique, is in a unique position to assist governments and to assist civil society in their efforts to protect and promote human rights. The expansion of field operations, as well as the increasing and deepening interaction with UN agencies and other crucial partners in government, international organizations, and civil society that my office has undertaken are important steps in this direction. And as you will see from what I'm saying, that we have moved away from the old strategies of mobilizing shame. Here, we want to help build capacity and assist states to fulfill their human rights requirements. This is where we can more easily strive for practical cooperation, leading to the creation of national systems which promote human rights and provide protection and recourse for victims of human rights violations. 
Our ability to refine and strengthen the impact of human rights action depends on the stewardship of the United Nations, both in terms of the institution's mandate, policies, and practice, as well as in terms of its leaders' commitment and vision. Charles Malik, one of the main drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, spoke of a vigorous moral leadership, convinced and therefore convincing. Allow me now to spend a few words on how I plan to use my own leadership in order to persuade, spur, change, galvanize action, and provide in sum a springboard for the betterment and welfare of all as well as a place where all are given a fair audience. I started from the premise that human rights norms provide uniform and universal standards that help us ensure that all are held to the same measure. My priority, therefore, will not be the ranking of various human rights, but rather their implementation on the ground in a way that affects and improves the lives of men, women, and children who are all entitled to realization of each and every right set forth in the Universal Declaration. I also start from the premise that the credibility of human rights work depends on a commitment to truth, impartiality, and integrity with no tolerance for double standards or for selectivity. This is what guides me as High Commissioner, and I intend to ensure that the universality of human rights norms, which speaks to our common humanity and priorities, informs discussions in politically charged environments and instills both measure and substance to political discourse in an objective manner. I will promote implementation of human rights treaties as well as encourage universal ratification of these treaties and enhance productive interaction between the various United Nations human rights mechanisms. I also believe that the work of the special procedures of the Human Rights Council deserves strong support. Their independent and impartial vigilance ensures that emerging issues are identified and that all human rights situations are addressed. The question now is how to better translate such standards and the recommendations of the experts into practice. Here, once again, leadership plays an irreplaceable role. But the leadership that I have in mind is not only that of remarkably committed individuals, affected groups, or enlightened states. I'm thinking rather of a more diffuse approach, the advocacy-enhancing leadership that has produced historic humanitarian change, including the creation of the International Criminal Court, where I was a judge. One of the key aspects of such advocacy and a, a crucial element of its success was that many individuals and organizations, as well as different branches of states' bureaucracy, bureaucracies were able to think outside the box of their immediate scope of intervention or mandates and embraced an overarching goal that, in part or in all, or, or in all transcended their specific field of specialization. Thus, they enlarged their basis of support among constituencies that were not necessarily well-versed in all the sophisticated details of a campaign, but who could buy into it through clear and immediately resonant messages. And therein lies the crux of the matter for human rights and enforcement and the leadership needed to realize it. Although most states, at least in their pronouncements, pledge to uphold human rights, 
those who actually do not have received insufficient pressure to change the course of their policies and action. This is in part due to the fact that governments are often reluctant to interfere in the affairs of another state and are therefore unwilling to exercise peer leverage. Another and concomitant factor is that beyond the work of specialized or directly affected individuals and organizations, there is inadequate familiarity with those human rights mechanisms that are mandated to both exercise vigilance over the implementation of human rights standards, as well as to facilitate access for rights holders to claim their due. The combination of these factors has engendered significant gaps in the implementation and enforcement of human rights. One of my priorities as leader of the United Nations Human Rights Mechanisms and as a good listener is crafting more intelligible and more compelling messages as well as making the avenues to redress more accessible, attractive, and responsive. To this end, I will continue to reach out not only to victims of abuse and to like-minded states, thinkers, and activists, but to all those constituencies whose aspirations and work is contagious to our advocacy and that can become our partners in right. At the same time, I will continue to spare no effort to persuade those reluctant states and non-state actors to join the fold of, of rights, the respect of which ultimately serves the best interests of all states, groups, and individuals. <coughs> Nelson Mandela has taught me that keeping an open mind towards other people's experiences and points of view no matter how different from one's own, and to open communication channels may serve the interest of justice better than strategies that leave no room for negotiation. I am aware that I may not be able to bank on those felicitous moments in history that almost effortlessly lead to change. To the contrary, I know that change must be skillfully led instead and then soundly managed. And I'm positive that the full enjoyment of human rights is bound to happen only if many stakeholders, diverse in their composition but germane in their objectives and actions, join together to affirm their leadership and their will. Thank you. either through a locally constituted tribunal or through the ICC. Thank you. 
And uh, then please leave, ask a direct question rather than make speeches. <laughs>
So I don't know how these meetings are viewed. Um, but I did ask that there's a, a place for a high commissioner to to also to Burma to, to speak to victims. And he, uh, the Secretary General, is taking that under consideration. Now, to the question of what's my biggest challenge, um, you heard me speak tonight about human rights. And I bet that most of what I said is already known to you because uh, you accept the principles of human rights. You accept that there are people suffering out there and, human, and, and need their human rights uh, to be addressed. Uh, so did I. So with that naivety, I come in and I find my biggest challenge that there are a whole lot of people out there, including uh, governments, that don't want to hear the word human rights, that feel it's uh, politicized. So that's the biggest challenge. Even get the language of human rights uh, within the UN agency and to get uh, states parties to focus on human rights in a council which is called the Human Rights Council. Um, so, so these are my challenges. Um, let's see how I fare. It's just two months so far. We're going to talk about this Executions in Afghanistan are very troubling because the United Nations has called for a moratorium uh, on uh, executions. So you would, you would have seen that I issued a statement two days ago on, on the five executions that have been carried out in Afghanistan. And last month, I issued a statement in respect of executions carried out on, on individuals who had been minors when they had committed the crimes. Um, I will continue to uh, pursue this and urge governments to uh, either abolish the death penalty or to hold a monitorium on executions as the United Nations has asked. Um, with, the, with regard to the Sri Lankan um, ambassador or anyone else uh, saying that new neo-colonial values are now being uh, attempted to be imposed on the South. This, uh, I, I was not there. I think it uh, characterized the kind of divisions that now uh, characterize the debates before the Human Rights Council. Uh, and this is why I stress to you what I bet most of you know that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights sets out universal norms. Uh, they, they're not uh, applicable to just the North, South, or West, or East. They are universal. And I intend to apply them uh, to all. And I intend to apply a, a common standard to all countries. Um, as I said, it's a, this is a lecture and I can't share lots of stories with you, but I've actually been asked by uh, certain governments, well, you know, what would be your approach to human rights situation in my country? I've been taken aback with myself, the same standard that I would apply with all countries. Uh, and that's why I said in my speech about no double standards and no selectivity. Uh, I hope that... Um, talking with people like you will strengthen me and that is all. Thank you. Um, we've got <coughs> literally two minutes uh, and the hydrogen has a plane to catch so we really cannot uh, go over it. So I'll just take two more. Um, I think we've been neglecting the back of the room rather. So we'll go up there and up there and one from this side. Yeah. yeah, and that I'm afraid will be it. So here, up there. I'm just very sorry. Um, I know that many other people have got things they would like to discuss. Very, very briefly, please. Um, my question is, um, I used to work at Amnesty International on Turkey in Greece, and the world wanted to know about Turkey, but no one was very interested in Greece because it's a member of the European Union. So my question is, uh, what are your intentions for scrutinising the European Union? European Union. <laughs> and one over here. What do you want to do? <coughs> My name is Bonita Meyersfeld, and I would like to know, given your background in violence against women and the internationalisation of it, how you and your mandate is going to address that. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <coughs> 
article to single out any country, Turkey or Myanmar. I, my focus will be wherever High Commissioner's um, intervention is needed, and that is where there are human rights violations. And really, literally, that covers all countries. I know already it is why you coming to us. You know, they have worse human rights problems. Uh, and I anticipate those kind of reactions. So therefore, an all-round focus. I've had meetings with the European Union and all their um, uh, ambassadors at, in Geneva, and I've also uh, addressed them at Brussels for the Conference on Human Rights Defenders. And uh, I've had meetings with the ambassador of Turkey. Um, and I will continue to watch the situation. All I want to say to you here, yeah, here's a certain power that the High Commissioner has, and that is, I could, have, I could hold these meetings and I could convey what I've been told to them. Yesterday I met with, uh, I was at Amnesty International and met with a group of uh, 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 UK NGOs, about 15 of you, and, and so I was properly brief for the formal meetings that I had today. Uh, on domestic violence, yeah, I think I'll begin Monica by reading your book on that. <laughs> I started off with uh, dealing with domestic violence uh, with women in South Africa um, because of, not only because of um, human rights violations in itself, but because it was a, a way of mobilizing women in apartheid South Africa. <coughs> I was um, raising at one of the luncheons. Uh, oh, I raised this issue with the uh, Governor General of Australia, uh, Australia's first woman Governor General. So on my way here, I, met, I met, went to meet with her because she had worked on issues of sexual discrimination and domestic violence. And I, I, I think I'm right that domestic violence has not been addressed as a human rights violation and taken up at the international level. Um, well, I'll give a thought then because it is, a, it is an issue that if Domestic violence occurs in almost all states. So thank you for your question. And all that's left for me to do now is to thank you once again for an extremely busy schedule. Thank you for the time.